This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way. Except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. Oh, hello, everyone. Welcome to The Great American Scream. My name is Devin Wright. My name is Adam O'Connell. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. It's a quiet, quiet <laughs> Halloween. Everybody I, be quiet. Shh, shh, shh. I hate this so much already. <laughs> uh, hello, everyone. Happy Halloween. We're so happy to have you. This is the 75th episode of this gosh dang podcast. And we thought, what a great number uh, to do... A little, a bit of a chill episode. Yeah, if you're uh, wondering why our tones are so dulcet on this day. <laughs> it's because we're so tired. Oh, God, so sleepy. Uh, no, but seriously, Adam uh, suggested that we do a podcast that was more geared towards, hey, put this on when you're, like, chilling out, like, lazing before bed, maybe falling asleep. I know I listen to the most uh, monotone, softly spoken gaming content on youtube when i'm falling asleep and so we thought you know let's throw our hat into that specific but, ring yeah but like a halloween version like put us on while you're carving that jack-o-lantern or making that hot cider or waiting to give out the candy to the to the kids put your <laughs> subwoofer to maximum point it out of your window and then just play our dulcet tones while you're waiting for children just blast tell the children the to listen to the podcast do not give out candy. Give out little QR codes that link directly to our Spotify page. We also apologize if the tone of these stories is vastly different. We selected and recorded them separately. So I have no idea yeah. what any of them are going to sound like. So if there's yeah. a lot of tonal whiplash in this episode, sorry. <laughs> in fact, uh, we don't even know if this one you're about to hear is the one we're about to record or a totally different one. Because I feel like Thursday this Devin one should decided- come at the end. So it's definitely not going to be the right one. So without further ado, please enjoy these wonderful stories that enjoy, we, enjoy that we an, found for you. An indeterminate number of tales of terror. If you're a fan of scary stories to tell in the dark, you may recognize this one. This is Harold by Alvin Schwartz. When it got hot in the valley, Thomas and Alfred drove their cows up to a cool green pasture in the mountains to graze. Usually, they stayed there with the cows for two months. Then they brought them down to the valley again. The work was easy enough, but oh, was it boring. All day, the two men tended their cows. At night, they went back to the tiny hut where they lived. They ate supper and worked in the garden and went to sleep. It was always the same. Then, Thomas had an idea that changed everything. Let's make a doll the size of a man, he said. It would be fun to make, and we could put it in the garden to scare away the birds. It should look like Harold, Alfred said. Harold was a farmer they both hated. They made the doll out of old sacks stuffed with straw. They gave it a pointy nose like Harold's and tiny eyes like his. Then they added dark hair and a twisted frown. Of course, they also gave it Harold's name. Each morning on their way to the pasture, they tied Harold to the pole in the garden to scare away the birds. Each night, they brought him inside to make sure he wouldn't get ruined if it rained. When they were feeling playful... They would talk to him. One of them might say, How are the vegetables growing today, Harold? Then the other, making believe he was Harold, would answer in a, ver- a crazy voice, Very slowly. 
They would both laugh, but not Harold. Whenever something went wrong, they took it out on Harold. They would curse at him, even kick him or punch him. Sometimes one of them would take the food they were eating, which they were both sick of, and smear it on the doll's face. How do you like that stew, Harold? They were asked. Well, you better eat it or else. Then the two men would howl with laughter. One night, after Thomas had wiped Harold's face with food, Harold grunted. Did you hear that? Alfred asked. It was Harold, Thomas said. I was watching him when it happened. I can't believe it. How could he grunt? Alfred asked. He's just a sack of straw. It's not possible. Let's throw him in the fire, said Thomas, and that'll be that. Let's not do anything stupid, said Alfred. We don't know what's going on. When we move the cows down, we'll leave him behind. For now, let's just keep an eye on him. So they left Harold sitting in the corner of a hut. They didn't talk to him or take him outside anymore. Now and then, the doll grunted, but that was all. After a few days, they decided there was nothing to be afraid of. Maybe a mouse or some insects had gotten inside Harold and were making these sounds. So Thomas and Alfred went back to their old ways. Each morning, they put Harold out in the garden, and each night they brought him back to the hut. When they felt playful, they joked with him. When they felt mean, they treated him as badly as ever. One night, Alfred noticed something that frightened him. Harold is growing, he said. I was just thinking the same thing, Thomas said. Maybe it's just our imagination, Alfred replied. We've been up here in this mountain too long. Next morning, while they were eating, Harold stood up and walked out of the hut. He climbed up on the roof and trotted back and forth like a horse on its hind legs. All day and all night long, he trotted like that. In the morning, Harold climbed down and stood in a far corner of the pasture. The men had no idea what he would do next. They were afraid. They decided to take the cows down into the valley that same day. When they left, Harold was nowhere in sight. They felt as if they had escaped a great danger and began joking and singing. But when they had gone only a mile or two, they realized they had forgotten to bring the milking stools. Neither wanted to go back for them, but the stools would cost a lot to replace. There was really nothing to be afraid of, they told one another. After all, what could a doll do? They drew straws to see which one would go back. It was Thomas. I'll catch up with you, he said, and Alfred walked on towards the valley. When Alfred came to a rise in the path, he looked back for Thomas. He did not see him anywhere, but he did see Harold. The doll was on the roof of the hut again. As Alfred watched, Harold kneeled and stretched out a bloody skin to dry in the sun. Hello, y'all. I'm going to read some Poe poetry because I started to read a short story and it was much, 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 much too long. So here first I'm going to read Annabelle Lee and then I'm going to read two other ones. Enjoy. We actually, I think we read this in freshman year of high school. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. She was a child and I was a child in this kingdom by the sea. But we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted, her and me. And this was the reason that long ago, in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud by night, chilling my Annabel Lee. 
so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me, to shut her up in a sepulcher, in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of a cloud chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise, but I see the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulcher there by the sea, in her tomb by the side of the sea. We're now going to venture into creepypasta territory with one of my personal favorites, Mr. Widemouth, by Perfect Circle 35 on the Creepypasta Wiki. Content warning for references towards violence against children. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river, never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island but there are fragments in the attic of my brain which belong to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness I experienced that spring but in my heart, I know they are real. We were living in a house just outside the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine, population 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms I didn't see in the five months we rented there. It, in some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house in the market at the time, at least within an hour's commute to my father's place of work. The day after my fifth birthday, attended by my parents, alone. I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mononucleosis, which meant no rough play and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden. We were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next few weeks. Boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't recall exactly how I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. He told me to call him Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body. His head, his eyes, his crooked ears. But his mouth was by far the largest. You look... Kind of like a Furby, I said as he flipped through one of my books. 
Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a Furby? He asked. I shrugged. You know, the toy. The little robot with the big ears. You can pet them and feed them, almost like a real pet. Oh. Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped to check in on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do so much during the first few days. Mr. Widemouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and the pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until after your mother comes to check on you because she can't see us play it. It's a secret game. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Widemouth slipped out from under the bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of the hallway, he said. I objected at first as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission, but Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second story of the house, but it was on a hill, and from this angle, the drop was further than two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend there is a big, soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather. I want you to try. I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of skepticism darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it was only a short drop. If it were that way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air only to bounce back to the window or something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Widemouth's face contorted into a snarl but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought knives into my room. Objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spent and grounded for a year. Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me up at night, saying he put a real trampoline under the window, a big one, one that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep, but Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning, encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk around outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me, especially after being confined to my room for so long. 
Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look because then he said, It's safe, I promise. I followed him to the beginning of a deer trail which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day, I hope to take you there. I returned to the house, wondering what kind of place lay beyond that trail. Two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. I would be in the cab of that truck, sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I'd be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit, despite what he said otherwise. For this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I were in the truck at 4 a.m. He was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow with the help of an endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. Early enough for you? My father asked with a hint of sympathy. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This will be the last move, son, I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once Daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn onto the main road. He gave me a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back. Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. The piece of land our house stood upon was empty except for the foundation, as the house burned down a few years after my family left. Out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me. But I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children. <clears throat> oh, hello. I'm back. Here's the second poem for you of uh, The City in the Sea by Edgar Allan Poe. Lo, death has reared himself a throne in a strange city lying alone, far down within the dim west, where the good and the bad and the worst and the best have gone to their eternal rest. There, shrines and palaces and towers, time-eaten towers that tremble not, resemble nothing that is ours. Around, by lifting winds forgot, resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. No rays from the holy heaven come down on the night, on the long nighttime of that town. But light from out the lurid sea streams up the turret silently, Gleams up the pinnacles far and free, up domes, up spires, up kingly halls, up fanes, up Babylon-like walls, up shadowy, long-forgotten bowers of sculpted ivy and stone flowers, up many and many a marvelous shrine whose wreathed friezes intertwine the viol, the violet, and the vine. Resignedly beneath the sky the melancholy waters lie. 
So blend the turrets and shadows there that all seem pendulous in the air, while from a proud tower in the town death looks gigantically down. There open fanes and gaping graves yawn level with luminous waves, but not the riches there that lie in each idol's diamond eye, not the gaily jeweled dead tempt the waters from their bed. For no ripples curl, alas, along that wilderness of glass, no swellings tell that wind may be upon some far-off happier sea. No heavings hint that winds have been on seas less hideously serene. But lo, a stir is in the air. The wave. There is a movement there, as if the towers had thrust aside in slightly sinking the dull tide, as if their tops had feebly given a void within the filmy heaven. The waves have now a redder glow. The hours are breathing faint and low, and wed amid no mirthly moans. Down, down, that town shall settle hence. Hell, rising from a thousand thrones, shall do it reverence. We're going with a creepypasta classic here. This is No End House by Brian Russell. Content warning for references to dismemberment, mental illness, and drug addiction. Let me start by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I said I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook years. There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I wasn't worried. He was a pretty notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he just stopped caring. Then one night, I saw him log on. Before I could initiate a conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. That was when he told me about the no-end house. It got that name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliche. Reach the final room of the building and you'll win $500. There were nine rooms in all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently, Peter had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who knows what the fuck addict, so I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone. That it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. I told him I would check it out the next night, no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise. $500 sounded too good to be true. I had to go. I set out the following night. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. Have you ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary, but for some reason a chill crawls up your spine? I walked towards the building and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the first door. My heart slowed and I let a relieved sigh leave me as I entered. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Room one this way. Eight more follow. Reach the end and you win. I chuckled as I made my way to the first door. The first area was almost laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween aisle of a Kmart, complete with sheet ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At far end was the exit. It was the only door besides the one I had entered through. I brushed through the fake spider webs and headed for the second room. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. 
Not only was there a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seemed to have a Halloween soundtrack that one would find in a 99 cent store on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a stereo, but I guess they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puffed chest to the next area. I reached for the doorknob and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open the door. A feeling of dread hit me, so hard I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrified moments and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room three is when things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of a wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, casting a few shadows across the floor and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. With the exception of the chairs, there were others. I had barely walked in the door and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. That set me off. Was someone locking the doors as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that set automatically? Maybe, but I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair shadow remained, but the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid, so I wrote off the shadows as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made it to the halfway point of the room. I looked down as I took my steps, and that's when I saw it. Or didn't see it. My shadow wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself without thinking into the room beyond. The fourth room was possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all light seemed to be sucked out and put back in the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, not able to move. I'm not afraid of the dark and never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand in front of my face, and if I didn't know what I was doing, I would have never been able to tell. Darkness doesn't describe it. I couldn't hear anything. It was dead silence. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. Wasn't even sure there was one this time. The silence was then broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around widely but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me. But I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I had never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what this thing had in store for me. Then the lights flashed for a second and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing and I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest I couldn't hear this goddamn sound for another minute. I ran backwards away from the noise and fumbled for the door handle. I turned and fell into room five. Before I describe room five, you have to understand something. I am not a drug addict. I've had no history of drug abuse or any sort of psychosis short of the childhood hallucinations I mentioned earlier. And those were only when I was really tired or just waking up. I entered the no-end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, my view of room five was from my back looking up at the ceiling. 
What I saw didn't scare me, it simply surprised me. Trees had grown into the room and towered above my head. The ceilings in this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was in the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room of them all. I couldn't even see the door from where I was. Various brush and trees must have blocked my line of sight with the exit. Up to this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier. But this was paradise compared to that last room. I also assumed whatever was in room four stayed back there. I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping bugs and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be the only company in this room. That was the thing that bothered me the most. I heard the bugs and other animals, but I didn't see any of them. I began to wonder how big this house was. From the outside, when I first walked up to it, it looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but this was almost a full forest in here. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls either. The only way I knew I was still inside was that the floor matched the other rooms, the standard dark wood paneling. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal the door. After a few moments of walking, I felt a mosquito fly onto my arm. I shook it off and kept going. A second later, I felt about ten more land on my skin in different places. I felt them crawl up my, and down my arms and legs, and a few made their way across my face. I flailed wildly to get rid of them, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream. More of a whimper, to be honest. I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawl. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch. But these bugs could touch me, and they were everywhere. I began to crawl. I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight, and I still haven't seen the exit. So I just crawled, my skin wriggling in the presence of those phantom bugs. After what seemed like hours, I found the door. I grabbed the nearest tree and propped myself up, mindlessly slapping my arms and legs to no avail. I tried to run, but I couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever it was that was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it. The low hum from before. It was coming from the next room and it was deeper. I could almost feel it inside my body like when you stand next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs lessened on me as the hum grew louder. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone, but I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let it go, the bugs would return and there was no way I would make it back to room four. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door mark six and my hand shakily grasping the knob. The hum was so loud I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think. There was nothing I could do but move on. Room six was next, and room six was hell. I closed the door behind me. My eyes held shut, my ears ringing. The hum was surrounding me. As the door clicked into place, the hum was gone. I opened my eyes in surprise and the door I had shut was gone. It was just a wall now. I looked around in shock, but the room was identical to room three. The same chair and lamp, but with the correct amount of shadows this time. The only difference was that there was no exit door and the one I came through was gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment I fell into what I now know is insanity. I didn't scream. I didn't make a sound. At first, I scratched softly. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was in there somewhere. I just knew it was. 
I scratched at where the doorknob was. I clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, my nails being filed down to the skin against the wood. I fell silently to my knees, the only sound in the room, incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I just knew it was there. I knew if I could just get past this wall. Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun around in one motion. I leaned against the wall behind me and I saw what it was that spoke to me. To this day, I regret ever turning around. There was a little girl. She was wearing a soft, white dress that went down to her ankles. She had long blonde hair to the middle of her back and white skin and blue eyes. She was the most frightening thing I had ever seen, and I know that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human and his toes were hooves. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying and it was synonymous with the little girl in front of me. They were the same form, I can't really describe it, but I saw them at the same time. They shared the same spot in that room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak, I could barely even see. My mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I had never been more scared than when I was trapped in the fourth room, but this was before room six. I just stood there staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped here with it. And then it spoke again. David, you should have listened. When it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl, but the other forms spoke through my mind in a voice I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating that sentence over and over in my mind, and I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness, yet couldn't take my eyes off of what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I'd passed out, but the room wouldn't let me. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open, and the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of the battery-powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me. But for some reason, seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it was headed, and I looked around the room. I was getting out of there. I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place again. I knew this room was hell and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first it was just my eyes that moved. I searched the walls for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big, so it didn't take long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growing louder as the form stayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hands on the floor and lifted myself up to all four and turned to scan the wall behind me. That's when I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now at my back, whispering my mind about how I shouldn't have come. I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. A large rectangle was scratched into the woods, with a small dent chipped away at the center of it. Right in front of my eyes, I saw the large seven I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond that wall where room five was moments ago. I don't know how I had done it. Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door. I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into the wall what I needed the most, an exit to the next room. Room seven was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both hands on the large seven in front of me. I pushed. I pushed as hard as I could. The demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, but I wasn't going to die. I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. 
I pushed and screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut and screamed. And the demon was gone. I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered. Just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have the time to tell. I turned back to the seven and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door. It wasn't the one I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large seven on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the knob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room six, I couldn't. But if this was the only room six, I couldn't imagine what seven had in store. I must have stood there for an hour, just staring at the seven. Finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room seven. I stumbled through the door, mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed and I realized where I was. I was outside. Not outside like room five, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and dry, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell. I didn't even care about the prize that was promised. I turned and saw that the door I just went through was the entrance. I walked to my car and drove home, thinking how nice a shower sounded. As I pulled up to the house, I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving no end house had faded and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual from the house and made my way to the front door. I entered and immediately went up to my room. There on my bed was my cat, Bakersville. He was the first living thing I had seen all night and I reached to pet him. He hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's just an old cat. I jumped in the shower and got ready for what I was expecting to be a sleepless night. After my shower, I went to the kitchen to make something to eat. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room. What I saw would forever be burned into my mind, however. My parents were laying on the ground, naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to near unidentifiable states. Their limbs were removed and placed next to their bodies, and their heads were placed on their chests facing me. The most unsettling part was the expressions. They were smiling, as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed there in the family room. I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess. Then I saw it. A door that was never there before. A door with a large eight scrawled on it in blood. I was still in the house. I was standing in my family room, but I was in room seven. The faces of my parents smiled wider as I realized this. They weren't my parents. They couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. The door marked eight was across the room behind the mutilated bodies in front of me. I knew I had to move on, but at that moment I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind. They grounded me where I stood. I vomited again and nearly collapsed. The hum returned. It was louder than ever and it filled the house and shook the walls. The hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the door and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard it seemed as though they were going to crumble, but still the faces smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. I was now between two bodies a few feet away from the door. The dismembered hands clawed their way across the carpet towards me, all while faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want the voices to match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths and the hands were inches from my feet. In a dash of desperation, I lunged towards the door, threw it open, and slammed it behind me. 
room eight. I was done. After what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything else in this fucking house could throw at me that I couldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of No End House. Unfortunately, things got more disturbing, more terrifying, and more unspeakable in Room 8. I still have trouble believing what I saw in Room 8. Again, the room was a carbon copy of rooms three and six, but sitting in the usually empty chair was a man. After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind finally accepted that the man sitting in the chair was me. Not someone who looked like me. It was David Williams. I walked closer. I had to get a better look, even though I was sure of it. He looked up at me, and I noticed tears in his eyes. Please, don't do it. Please don't hurt me. What? I asked. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are. He was sobbing now. You're going to hurt me and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began rocking back and forth. It was actually pretty pathetic looking, especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was now only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet, standing there talking to myself. I wasn't scared, but I would be soon. Why are you... You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. If you want to leave, you're going to hurt me. Why are you saying this? Just calm down, all right? Let's try and figure it. And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes as me, except for a small red patch on his shirt embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. Please don't. Please, you're going to hurt me. My eyes didn't leave that small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors were plain and simple, but after a while they got a little more ambiguous. Seven was scratched into the wall, but by my own hands. Eight was marked in blood above the bodies of my parents. But nine. This number was on a person. A living person. Worse still, it was on a person that looked exactly like me. David? I had to ask. Yes. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to David. He was me, right down to the voice. But that nine. I paced around for a few minutes while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied the walls and floor around the chair, sticking my head underneath and seeing if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair was a knife. Attached was a tag that read, To David, from management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag was something sinister. I wanted to throw up, and the last thing I wanted to do was remove that knife from under the chair. The other David was still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here, and how did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that as I knelt on the cold wood floor, I also sat in the chair sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. My thoughts for some reason turned to Peter and whether or not he got this far. If he did, he met a Peter Terry sobbing in this very chair, rocking back and forth. I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair, and immediately the other David went quiet. David, he said in my voice, what do you think you're going to do? I lifted myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. 
David was still sitting in the chair, though he's very calm now. He looked at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood, facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the knife in my hand and gripped it tighter. I didn't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now. His voice was slightly deeper than my own. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I had mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. He looked up at me, terrified. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it deep in my body. David looked up at me as I looked down at myself. The hum was getting louder, and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell on the room, and I was falling. The darkness around me was like nothing I had experienced up to that point. Room four was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me. I wasn't even sure if I was falling after a while. I felt weightless, covered in the dark. Then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost and depressed. The sight of my parents entered my mind. I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it, and the mind had trouble differentiating between what is real and what isn't. The sadness only deepened. I was in room nine for what seemed like days, the final room. And that's exactly what it was. The end. The no-end house had an end, and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever, accompanied by nothing but darkness. Not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I had lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself. I couldn't hear anything. Sight was completely useless here. I had searched for taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt disembodied and completely lost. I knew where I was. This was hell. Room 9 was hell. Then it happened. A light. One of the stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. I felt ground come up from below me, and I was standing. After a moment or two of gathering my thoughts and senses, I slowly walked towards the light. As I approached the light, it took form. It was a vertical slit down the end of an unmarked door. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I started. The lobby of the no-end house. It was exactly how I left it, still empty, still decorated with the childish Halloween decorations. After everything that had happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. After a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with my name handwritten on it. Immensely curious, but still cautious, I mustered up the courage to open the envelope. Inside was a, a letter, again handwritten. David Williams. Congratulations. You have made it to the end of No End House. Please accept this prize as a token of great achievement. Yours forever, management. Within the letter, there were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car and I laughed as I drove home. I laughed as I pulled into my driveway. I laughed as I opened my front door to my house and laughed as I saw the small 10 etched into the wood. So this story, our final one, is what Welcome back. Adam... I hope okay. you enjoyed the spooky ones. I hope you enjoyed the spooky ones, uh, or just the regular ones that Devin read, the, you know, the monkey's paw or whatever. Uh, this one Adam sent to me as an idea for a funny one, and I'll be honest, I didn't read it all the way through because I didn't want to spoil it for myself. Honestly, to be totally honest with you, neither did I. That's incredible. So if it's weird, sorry. <laughs> bow out. Well, 
Here it is. This is from reddit.com slash r slash no sleep. And I'm going to read you the title. And then yeah, go ahead. Adam is going to read uh, the description and the first entry. And then we're just going to swap back and forth. Beautiful. Posted by user the Jesse Clark. <laughs> to the landlord. The stove is broken again. And demonic hauntings are unacceptable. The following maintenance requests and complaints were found on the computer of one Mrs. Doris May, the landlord of the apartment building at 2618 Wayne Boulevard, following the thorough search of the building by the police. Donald Fitzgerald, Unit 411. January 13th. My wife and I moved here for the proximity to the subway and for the cheap rent, but we did not move here so we wouldn't have a working stove. Nobody does that. I do that. not plan on eating takeout for the remainder of my tenure at this building. I demand maintenance come down at once to fix this. Unacceptable. January 24th. And now the refrigerator isn't working? The refrigerator temperature should be at a nice cool 34 degrees Fahrenheit. But try as we might, Patricia and I have been unable to get it below 36 degrees. So now our milk is spoiled, the cheese is molded, my yogurt is inedible, and my beers are not chilled the way I like when I get home from a long day at work. Once again, I demand a maintenance representative be here tomorrow to fix this, and not the same man as last time. Jose was rude and did not even apologize at all for all of this inconvenience when we yelled at him. February 8th. It seems we can't go a single day without finding something unacceptable about this building. At nighttime, both Patricia and I hear a faint but constant thumping in the walls. What is that? I demand to know why we cannot get some peace and quiet. February 12th. If our Wi-Fi drops out in the middle of Patricia's stories one more time, there will be hell to pay. Get the ISP down here now to increase our speeds. This is insane. February 18th. It appears my previous demand went unheeded. Last night, the thumping was far worse. It sounds like a ghost is living in the walls. Patricia hates ghosts. They are rude and uninvited and do nasty things like slam doors and break china and dishes. Get a job, ghosts. Patricia can't sleep in these conditions, and I hereby demand an exorcist to be brought to the premises to deal with this at once. At once! February 27th. The... Refrigerator is acting up again. I thought this was fixed. The expiration date, the expiration date on my milk says used by March third, but it is not March third yet, and already my milk is starting to smell. The temperature is thirty-six degrees and rising. Unacceptable. March fourth. So today I came home from work and go to hang up my coat, and what did I find? A bouquet of flowers from the downstairs office thanking us for being dream tenants who always pay rent on time? No! I found a cold spot by the bedroom door. The air the air is of an unacceptable but not ideal... No, pardon me. The Please. air is of an acceptable but not ideal temperature throughout our apartment. But by the door to our bedroom, there is a cold spot. This indicates the presence of a spiritual entity and I do not pay $1,800 a month to be haunted in my own home. Unacceptable. I demand this to be dealt with at once. At once. March 7th. Thank you for fixing the stove, but I did not appreciate how Jose made me feel stupid for not knowing about the pilot light feature. I expect he will be reprimanded appropriately. 
March 11th. Yesterday, I had a run-in with Paul Schumer... Yesterday, I had a run-in with Paul Schumerman from down the hall. He was very rude to me when I asked him to stop staring at us venomously whenever we see him. Do you know what he did? He continued to stare as if he wishes harm upon me. I demand to know what will be done about Paul Schumerman. March 14th. So apparently, it is not just Paul Schumerman who is bizarre and rude. Rosa Martinez, the elderly foreign woman, Ajis, with maybe five or six remaining teeth from floor three, smiled at us in a very evil-looking way that I did not appreciate when I was getting our mail. I demand what? I demand to know what will be done about Rosa Martinez. March 14th. I know I just submitted a request, but it is 1045 and Patricia is unable to sleep because of her nightmares. She says she can see a black figure standing at the end of our bed with red eyes. Not okay. Was someone murdered in this unit? Answers. (laughs) March 16th. It is unacceptable that on James Madison's birthday, we cannot get the heat to stay on. The temperature is at 40 degrees, much too cold. Fix this. March 17th. Still too cold. And do you mind explaining why all the pictures of Patricia and myself in our hallway were smashed and broken on the ground? I am calling an exorcist since you refuse to do so and rent will be reduced by the cost of his services. March 19th. We brought in a local priest who says that, guess what? It's not a ghost. It's a demon. A demon infests my humble abode as I write this. Do you think that this is an acceptable way to run an apartment? No. No, it is not. I asked what we can do about the situation, and he says that we should leave immediately, because if we don't, the demon will latch onto us and follow us around. I am not relocating this soon. I asked him to deal with it, and he said he can't, that it's beyond his abilities to fight, and that we need to have the entire building fully blessed. He then scheduled a time tomorrow for he and several other priests, rabbis, and pastors to arrive and do a thorough blessing of the building. You will be billed for this. March 19th. Once again, I cannot sleep. Patricia is sleepwalking yet again, except instead of walking down the hall or screaming while still asleep from the kitchen, she is crawling on the ceiling and shouting at me in a very deep voice while her head twists fully around like an owl. I told her to get down at once, and she said, no, she is mine. Excuse me, demon, she is not. I have work in the morning, but what do I, what I do not have is patience for this nonsense. Oh, and when I told the demon to let us sleep, it said, F me. F me. I do not appreciate that kind of language, no sir. Then she began hissing and spitting steaming bile onto the bed and laughing maniacally. My blanket is ruined. I am typing this on my laptop from the couch while she shouts blasphemies from down the hall. If these priests do not fix this issue, we were reporting you for this mess. March 20th. Do you mind explaining to me why there are herbs and twigs by my door beneath a sign of a pentagram? I expect expect this is the work of Paul Schumerman or Rosa Martinez or that nasty Dylan French from Unit 221. You need to do a better job picking tenants for this establishment. March 20th. So I come inside and Patricia is gone. Her absence was not arranged beforehand and I expect it has something to do with the demon. 
this is not okay. When I come home from work, I expect to be able to relax in front of a game show with a beer while my wife knits. But that is not going to be the case today, apparently. There are scratched pentagrams all over the walls, broken lamps, the lights don't work, the refrigerator door is hanging open, thus ruining yet more milk, more milk gone, and the entire apartment is freezing. I will be doing a thorough, a thorough search through of this building for my wife, updating you on any unpleasantries I encounter from my phone as needed. And when I get back, I expect Jose will have fixed the lights. March 20th. It appears these tenants knew I was coming. I am on floor three and they are all standing outside their homes watching me. Silently. Unmoving as I walk down the hallway between them. And I believe I smell marijuana from the gay couple's home. Marijuana! An illegal drug that kills millions every year. In your building. Do something about this. I will not have the devil's conja so close to my abode. If the police conduct a SWAT raid looking for marijuana, we will all go to federal prison. All of us. March 20th. I have decided I cannot abide the presence of such a terrifying drug as marijuana anywhere near my person, my wife, or my place of residence. I have alerted the authorities, and they are en route. I apologize if a life sentence for you is inconvenient, but I have no other choice. March 20th. So I asked sweet Mrs. Robinson from Unit 334 where my wife was, and she said the basement. The basement? I go down there for laundry, not my wife. Also, I hereby and henceforth demand that a washer-slash-dryer unit, preferably stacked, although I am willing to negotiate on this, be placed in our unit when this unfortunate episode is concluded. I do not like going into the basement with a basket of dirty laundry twice or three times a month because I have to use the stairs because you can't get your elevator working. March 20th. Why are the lights off on floor two? And where are the priests? All I see are more tenants pointing in unison down the stairs while staring at me like they are in a trance. It smells like rotting corpses and old food down here, maybe old lasagna. This was not the case when I left for work this morning, although to be fair, I simply walked down the stairs and did not venture down this hallway. I also did not notice the arrows painted in blood pointing downstairs. I assume those were put up while I was at work? March 20th. Two asterisk. Be fair. My apologies. This is in reference to the fact that the word to in the sentence when I left for the morning, although to be fair, was spelt (laughs) T-O-O. March 20th. Where is the front door? I am on floor one and the front door is just missing. I just used it. Instead, there is just a swirling vortex of impenetrable blackness with blood coming out of it and staining the nice carpet. I expect this will be fixed as I have work tomorrow. I need to be there early so I can prepare for a presentation on sales reports from quarter one. Quarter one. March 20th. I have now reached the door to the basement. Why is the word come scratched repeatedly into the wood here? (laughs) Unsightly. C-O-M-E. Just Yeah. March 20th. I am at the top of the basement stairs. Did you know that there are demonic voices whispering to people down here, saying, come downstairs with us, join us, join us, join us, over and over and over again? Why do they feel the need to repeat themselves? This is inefficient. March 20th. The voices are now saying that the gospel is a lie. 
But I said nothing about the first four books of the New Testament. This is an irrelevant red herring, and I demand we replace these demons with ones who can at least stay on topic. I am here for my wife, and not to debate the minutiae of Judeo-Christian theology with malevolent spiritual entities who, if I'm being perfectly honest, cannot be trusted on the manner because they are clear cannot be trusted on the matter because they clearly have a vested interest in me feeling one way or another as far as this subject is concerned, and thus are not being objective. If this keeps up, then I will be taking my laundry to the laundromat down on block and charter for the foreseeable future, and you will lose out on my business in that department. March 20th. Well, now I see where the priests have gone. Their bones are scattered across the basement and their collective blood is swirling in a vortex around what appears to be a portal to hell in the center of the basement, around which all the tenants of the ground floor are seated and worshipping. I believe I said very clearly that I did not want hell portals in my place of residence and no one seemed to indicate this would be a problem when I signed the lease. If I am ever to use these washing and drying machines again, I expect the gateway to Hades to be closed and the place to be cleaned thoroughly before I do so. The smell is terrible, and I also demand that the glowing fiery pentagram in the floor beneath the portal be doused and cleaned off. It is detrimental to what little decor there is in the basement. March 20th. Well, all the tenants now see me, but as of this typing have yet to respond to my demands to see my wife, they are simply staring at me, and I'm sorry, where are their eyes? Are eyes not fashionable anymore? How can they see me if they have no eyes? This is impossible, and I demand they cease it at once. They have no respect for the rules or of either this apartment or physics itself. This day is ruined. March 20th. Their asterisk eyes, spelled T-H-E-I-R. March 20th. My wife, who is quite unkempt and whose hair appears to be unwashed and who looks like she is possessed with Satan, parentheses, unacceptable, end parentheses, has joined the group as they speak to me in unison. I'm sorry. When was there a group practice for this performance, and why was I not invited? It is quite rude to exclude members of your own apartment from such group activities as theater and Latin classes, apparently. And also, I assume this strange deep voice they are singing in belongs to the towering horned beast that has stepped through the portal and is pointing a clawed finger at me and approaching me slowly in an aggressive manner that I do not appreciate. Who is he? Does he pay rent? Do you just let anyone enter this building even if they don't pay rent? And if so, then I demand hereby henceforth and at once by the power vested in me as a lawful citizen and as a resident of this apartment who is not nor ever has been delinquent on the payment of rent nor any other agreed upon expenses that 1238T1ASDGN apostrophe semicolon period question mark TG79 apostrophe semicolon period at sign dot dot backslash pound. Let that one sit there for a second. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> that was great. I like that one. <laughs> hey, that was a very good story. Uh, what a great way to close out the night. Uh, we hope you enjoyed. You're probably just in the throes of sleep, which means that it's the perfect time to send you little subliminal messages. Hey, when you wake up, rate and review the Great American Scream on iTunes and follow us on Spotify and share this show with a friend because it's the best way to spread the word about the show. Adam, can you 
uh, psychically link our social medias to the psyche of our sleeping listeners? Yes, you can find us on Facebook at uh, The Great American Scream or more frequently on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. If you liked this, uh, please tell us and send us more stories to read. We'd be happy to do more of these. Oh, yeah. Uh, you can tweet us or post using the hashtag TGAS. And as always, if you have a suggestion for a future episode, uh, tweet at us or post because your suggestion may become the topic for a future episode. Hey, special thank you to Michael Segudo. I know you're listening. Sweet, sweet dreams, Michael. And also a special thank you to Stevie Viola. You're listening to, hey, sweet dreams, Steve. Uh, Michael does the intro disclaimer and Stevie does the intro and outro music. And a special thank you to each of our sleepy little patrons at the level of the man in the fields or higher. So thank you to Regina, good night, Ben, sweet dreams, Gail. Until tomorrow, Joyce. Have a great sleep, Melinda. And hey, Chris, put your phone away. It's bedtime. <laughs> uh, we hope you have a safe and happy Halloween. Uh, have a wonderful time this weekend. Uh, so glad everybody gets to do Halloween this year. Be safe. Wash your hands. Wash those hands before you eat that candy. Wash your hands. Check them for ganj and other drugs. Uh, and I've been Devin Wright. I've been Adam O'Connell. And hopefully you have been spooked and swept off to dreamland. Yeah, hopefully you're also asleep. Shh. <laughs>